When I was a kid, my father banned television. I remember one instance of the enforcement of this policy quite clearly. It was during our year in Peoria, Illinois, where none of us four children had much to do when outside was too hot to play. And inside, well, there were books and conversations and Legos, but all we really wanted to do was watch TV. My brother, the oldest of the four of us, had apparently figured out how to pick the lock that my dad had put on the switch that controlled the connection to the television cable. So by some marvel of engineering, he got the connection going and the four of us huddled around the living room TV, eager to lap up those precious forbidden moments of such high quality programming as Full House. <laughs> of course, Sweet victory never lasts. My dad noticed something was up and seeing us zombified in front of the heinous machine chased us away from the TV set to do something more useful. Thereafter, I think, he literally took scissors to cut the cable, disabling the set for good. But little did he know that the four of us had quietly climbed up the stairs and slipped into my brother's room where he had stashed away an old broken TV he'd found and fixed up himself. So my dad never knew that, like it or not, we darn well finished that episode of Full House and Contraband Peace. Even today, I think that this sense of forbidden enjoyment has long colored my torturous relationship with this medium called video. Its colorful images, its alluring drama, its promises of a secret intimate lens into a life not my own has always drawn me near, like a moth drawn inevitably to light. It beckons my curiosity. It livens me with a desire to find out what I'm missing out on, to be part of and lost in a storyline, a drama, a far away and grown up world so vastly more different than my own. And yet, I've also long been aware of its dangers, its ability to suck me in, to paralyze me, to make me not my own. I think that without the policing of my television banning father, I'm no match for the power of video. Give me a second of a moving image, and there you have it, my attention is completely theirs. It's irresistible. Warn me of all my weaknesses, of all of video's power, of all the sleepless nights and procrastinated assignments and lonely evenings in that have been the cost of video's allure. But nothing will keep this Pandora from opening her disastrous box. Now, before the color television of my childhood, there was black and white television, and before that, there was projected film, at first both silent and then with sound, preceded by the zoopraxiscope, in turn, preceded by the stroboscope, the phenakistoscope, and the zoetrope. All of these inventions undoubtedly were marvelous, a picture that moves. No wonder people would flock to the cinema to see them. But even though moving pictures had a long and illustrious history in motion picture cinemas by the time it became widely accessible, accessible, 
The home television was really what brought video into our homes, our families, our most intimate lives. The television replaced the fireplace to become the fixture of our living rooms, the gathering point around which we and our families would come together to share a common experience. But, I contend, something more fundamental to our viewing habits changed much more recently when we stopped sharing viewing experiences together, when video was not something viewed in a cinema with the public, nor at home with others in the family, nor with roommates, but rather alone, preferably alone. I remember my freshman year of college when my roommate and I were still getting used to each other. YouTube was just three years old back then, and we were all still figuring out the etiquette of streaming video on your laptop while others were around. The first thing we figured out, of course, was that you had to listen through your own earbuds, definitely not through speakers. You could freely watch all the video you wanted, whenever you wanted, except that the times and places you wanted to watch video didn't necessarily match up with what other people wanted. So if you wanted to watch a clip, but your roommate was working, it was only respectful to plug yourself in. But then, what about the laughter? Video clips are funny, or a lot of them were. And when you couldn't hold down a chortle or a full-fledged laugh, your roommate was bound to be curious and want to watch it too. So we made another rule. You had to share what you were laughing at. You couldn't just keep it to yourself. Thinking back on it now, I consider what an illuminating rule that was, because it feels kind of quaint today. It tells me how much we were still shaped by our living room instincts, our sense that video was something to be shared, to be watched together, to be experienced, laughed at, sobbed at in common. But as the year went on, that rule began to shift. We stopped demanding to be in on the other person's laughter, and eventually we became used to each other, snickering to ourselves on our own laptops, not bothering to share with each other, not bothering to know what the other was laughing at. We would both be in the same room, but plugged in, staring at our own screens, immersed in our own respective realities, where even such a basic social element as laughter was separated into discrete individual worlds. To me, that year marked the privatization of video. Video was for one person to consume at will, whenever, wherever, and most of all, alone. Over the years, left to my own devices, my worlds, my escapes, would become the endless trove of five-minute clips that comprise the universe of YouTube. When faced with a difficult task or assignment, it became easy just to say, well, you know, I'm just going to watch this five-minute clip and then get to work. And then at the end of that five-minute clip to say again, just one more, and then another, and then another and then another, another, another. And I distinctly remember one night in my last year of college when I got caught up in an endless stream of meaningless insect battles. Beetles versus ants, millipedes versus scorpions. 
and I just had to watch it. I stayed awake and unproductive from dusk to dawn the next morning. And I can see that image of me in the dark clicking that irresistible next video button over and over again, like an experimental mouse pressing that bar for dopamine release again and again. This veritable tradition continued, continues now, continued through this winter as I really came to love Lucy as her household antics helped me to cope with that cooped up domestic life forced indoors all day, in, in my case, not by misogynistic social standards, but rather the relentless cold of a horrible winter. I was miserable and Lucy was there whenever I needed her. The aloneness of being in bed, the aloneness of eating, the aloneness of sitting at my desk, all of it could be magically made to disappear with the laughable, on-demand company of Lucille Ball and Company. And then there was Netflix. <laughs> Netflix, that incredible service that with one monthly subscription gives you limitless access to an infinite world of streaming video. And of course, I couldn't help but binge watch. And in one torturous all-nighter, I watched the entire third season of House of Cards. And I was miserable. I was truly miserable. I didn't want to watch it. Or I just wanted to watch one episode. I didn't want to watch it all. I had other more important things to do, like sleep. And yet, and yet, and yet, I had to know what would happen to that murderous, hateful villain of a hero and what he'd do next. And I had to know how sweet revenge would finally reach him. And I had to know how misfortune would befall him through that betrayal of his equally sinister wife. And I had to watch, even though I was so tired I so needed the sleep. And when, before I knew it, it was the next morning, I knew that that was it. I could never watch another video again. <laughs> I could never binge watch again. I didn't care what stupid plot line I was gonna miss out on. I didn't care what it would take. I needed to know what life was like without this crazy reliance on video technology. So I called my friend, who's right there actually, Ian Coughlin, and made a pledge not to watch video alone for 60 days. I was going to do it cold, effective, immediately. So it's my 48th day in that pledge. What is life on the other side, you ask? <laughs> well, here are a few things I've learned. I've learned that video is really hard to avoid. I'm bombarded with it every day, every time I open up my internet connection. One of my primary ways of connecting with friends, Facebook, insists that I scroll through automatically playing video clips that rob my attention before I can even remember what I was trying to reach out to a friend for. 
I've learned that it really helps never to have to make a choice. I used to grapple with the question of whether I'd watch an episode of this or that before I go to bed. And of course, if I ask myself the question, I'm the only you know, person in the way of me, so why would I ever say no? And by forcing myself never to have to ask, and just by default choosing no, I've given myself the first opportunity, perhaps ever, the real, to experience the real freedom to choose which way I want to truly spend my time. I've also learned that life is boring. And that's okay. It's quiet, and that's fine. There are moments when I'm alone, painfully alone, and that's okay. That's the space I have to hear my thoughts. That's the space I have to call up my friends to chat. That's the space I have to pull out that old science fiction anthology to enjoy far out worlds at my own pace, with my own imagination. That's the space I can randomly go to Central Square, track down a typewriter, and then write a letter to an ex-girlfriend. Or to buy a basketball to play with a buddy. And all of those are just quiet, tiny, insignificant moments, but they're new and they're rich. My life, I admit, will never be like Kevin Spacey's, but it's good enough. And these are my own life. My own life is small and less dramatic, but it's worth living. Like any art or anything consumed, like food, everything in moderation. After this 60-day period ends, I don't know whether I'm going to go back to watching videos. I don't feel like it now. I like my policy. It's working well, but who knows? The point is not, as our temperance-pushing Unitarian forebears advocated, the point is not to excise some evil completely from our lives. As I move forward, I think I'll ask myself the question about this and for anything in my life that I notice is broaching moderation. Does it distance me from others or does it bring me closer? Does it move me closer to the divine or further away? Does it bring me more in tune with myself, or does it bring me out of tune? I'll think about it. Video and anything else can do all of those things. It's up to me to choose. Amen, Ashe, and blessed be.